You're listening to Real Presence Live. Now, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories and a look at the extraordinary things happening in our local area. Heard right here on the RPR Network. Okay, back to more inspirational and uplifting stories, as he says. But before that, we're going to go to one of Doreen's inspirational and uplifting and uproarious (laughs) jokes or riddles. It's kind of a riddle. Kind of a riddle. Mm -hmm. Okay, let's go. Are you ready? Yeah. What kind of music did the pilgrims listen to at the first Thanksgiving feast? Um, pilgrims, Thanksgiving feast. Music. Music. Uh, uh, does it have the word turkey in it? Turkey does, Turkey in the straw? Does not have the word turkey. Okay, in it. not turkey. Okay. Um, I don't know. Plymouth Rock. Oh boy! <laughs> Pretty bad. <laughs> yep. Okay. I can. I can. I can hear them laughing on the other side of the broadcast microphone <laughs> yes, here sure out there are. in Real Presence Radio they, Land. Doubled over. <laughs> yeah. We might have to give them a break before we even start our, our interview. <laughs> no, our next got, interview. No, we want to start. No, our we want to get going. Yes. Uh, our next guest is uh, Steve Weidenkopf. Uh, another. Uh, he's no stranger to Real Presence Live. The last time. Uh, Dreen and I hosted. Uh, Steve talked to us about the Crusades. And this time, I think we're talking about something that's kind of associated with that particular period of time. We're talking about the Knights Templar. And uh, I think it's an interesting uh, uh, part of the, the, the church's history. But I think it's often misunderstood. And part of it, I think, is the way it's, the, it's been kind of misrepresented, I, I think, in movies. I think specifically, and Steve, maybe you, you can speak to that. I think the Da Vinci Code had some uh, something about them. You know, they're kind of this shadowy group of uh, uh, monks with uh, riding horses and carrying swords and batting people over the head. But anyway, Steve, why don't you introduce yourself and then let's get into our discussion. Yeah, hi, sure. Jack and Doreen, thanks for having me on the show again. And uh, Steve Weidenkopf, I'm a professor, adjunct professor at the Christendom College Graduate School of Theology, where I teach church history. Uh, and a course on the Crusades as well. So I've, I've written on the Crusades and several other subjects of, of church history. So happy to chat with you today and talk about the uh, the enigmatic uh, Knights Templar that is always a shadowy figure that people bring up and, and about our history. Well, just keep running with it. Yeah. Who, who, are, who were the Knights Templar? Yeah, so the Knights Templars were... So to understand the Templars, right, you have to, we have to go back in time and understand the, the context in which they, they originated, right? So the context is this, to set the stage for everyone. So uh, after the, the successful First Crusade, which, which uh, liberated the Holy City of Jerusalem from Muslim control back in the summer of 1099, many of the uh, knights and, and warriors who had come from Christendom, from Europe, to participate in that First Crusade, because they saw it as an armed pilgrimage, which is what it was, they many of them, you know, left uh, after they had completed their pilgrimage. It was a pilgrimage to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, and just like you and I go on pilgrimage today to a specific shrine or a church, we go, we pray, we spend some time, and then we go back home. The Crusaders did the same thing, the vast majority of them. Some Crusaders did stay in the Holy Land in what became known as the Latin East, Uh, And they had liberated, through the course of the First Crusade campaign, they had liberated about 600 miles worth of territory um, uh, along the coast of what is now today, places like Jordan, Israel, and whatnot. And so this, uh, this, like, loss of manpower then 
posed a problem for the Christians who remained in the Latin East. They had this huge frontier, the 600-mile frontier of Christian territory that they had to protect from, uh, you know, the surrounding Muslim armies and powers. And so to do that, they, they relied on mercenaries at times, which, though, can be very expensive. Um, obviously, they had their own, you know, soldiers and warriors uh, that were in, this, in the Christian territory, but they were not numerous. They also had some, um, you know, fresh waves, if you will, of crusaders who had come from Christendom. But once word got back to, to Europe that the Holy City of Jerusalem had been liberated and the first crusade had been successful, there weren't that many follow-on campaigns, if you will, at least not initially. And, and the nature of crusading is, is that it was always episodic and temporary, right? So you could have the Pope call for a crusade to do something specific, liberate Jerusalem or liberate Edessa or liberate other areas uh, in what became known as the Latin East. But people would take the cross, they would come to the Holy Land, they'd participate in crusades, and they usually, most of them, as I mentioned, would go back home. So it always left the people, the Christians who remained in the, in the Holy Land, short of manpower. So this, this idea originated as a result of this context of creating what became known as military religious orders, or religious orders, monks, who were also warriors. They were warrior monks. And so for them, although for the vast majority of, of crusaders and warriors from Europe who participated in the crusades, that was a temporary thing. For these uh, warrior monks, if you will, crusading was a, a devotional way of life. It became their life, if you will. Uh, and so, ultimately, there were four main religious orders, military religious orders, uh, that grew out of the First Crusade, if you will, and the Crusading movement. They were the Hospiters, the Templars, the Teutonic Knights, and the, the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre. Uh, the most famous of which are the Templars and the Hospiters, and the two Teutonic Knights to a certain extent as well. Um, and they all have very interesting and unique histories. And, and what were the main goal of these orders? Yeah, so the main goal of the orders was to defend, so what I was mentioning, right, was to defend the Holy Land and Christian pilgrims from harassment and attack by the surrounding Muslim forces. That was the whole purpose of them. Now, some of them, uh, some of these groups, the hospitals in particular, had existed as a religious order in the Holy Land prior to the First Crusade. The hospitals most famously ran a hospital uh, known as the Hospital of St. John in Jerusalem where they cared for the sick. Uh, and that was their initial non-military focus. And then later on, as a result of the crusading movement, they, they kind of um, you know, grew, if you will, a military arm, a uh, military wing to their religious order. Uh, but then the Knights Templars, uh, really, you know, the subject of our talk here is, they were a bit unique, right? They started um, as a military religious order. So they were founded in the year 1120 by Hugh of Pa and eight other companions, uh, including the uncle of the, the famous St. Bernard of Clairvaux, a man by the name of Andrew of Montbard. Uh, and the Knights Templars, they originally were called the Poor Knights of Christ uh, because they had a, a, a focus of being very... They took the vows of the Evangelical Council, so they lived the, the vows of poverty, chastity, obedience. Uh, they also took a special vow to protect Christian pilgrims on the on the road from the port of Jaffa to the city of Jerusalem, which was a very dangerous stretch of territory. Uh, and so that was another special vow that they took. But the Knights Templars followed the Cistercian rule, so they were Benedictine in origin, but more observant of the Benedictine order, as the Cistercians were. Uh, and they came to be known as the Knights Templar because King Baldwin II of Jerusalem 
supported them and gave them uh, part of the temple enclosure, as part of the royal palace on the temple enclosure as their barracks. And so as a result of that, they became known as the Knights of the Temple, uh, because that's where their barracks were in Jerusalem, or they also then colloquially became known as Templars, and that's how we kind of refer to them and know them today. You, I was going to ask a question about the vows, but you already answered that one, but you did mention something uh, that's uh, causing a question for me, and that is, you know, you said that they were they, their vows were to defend the, 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 the road between Joppa and I can't remember where else, but were the, the various, these four different uh, orders... Were they kind of, did they have specific territories? Yeah, no, that's a very good question. And, and it's, yeah, I mean, the short answer is sort of. So what I mean by that is, is so these religious orders, these military orders, as they grew and recruits, um, you know, were attracted to the order and the way of life and whatnot, they were, at least those in the Holy Land, were used to, in various different ways, right? They, they did have their own specific um you know, territory and buildings and houses and things like that, where they where they lived, where they were, you know, uh, bivouacs, if you were, barracks, and they, where they maintained their weapons and their horses and all the other kinds of, of, you know, instruments of war. They also staffed and manned uh, certain castles and certain fortifications throughout what became known as the Crusader State. So after the First Crusade, as I mentioned, you had some uh, First Crusaders who remained and tried to defend the territory that they had liberated, Ultimately, there were four what we call crusader states or principalities and counties, feudal territories in essence that were created. And in those four uh, crusader states, there were castles that were built, right, to to guard and uh, to be a, a you know a military base and a strategic area in these various crusader states. And very often, excuse me, very often these these castles were maintained and were garrisoned, if you will by the military religious orders. So you had the hospitals would, you know, occupy and garrison one particular castle, the Templars, you know, a, a different one. Uh, and so so they did have, in, in that regard, their kind of own territory, if you will. And as the orders grew, uh, especially the Templars, they were given territory by nobility, especially in Europe, in Christendom. So the Templars, that's one of the, the reasons how the Templars become very influential and very wealthy, frankly, is they are, are gifted land and territory in Europe, and they obviously collect the rents and the income from that land and territory, so it makes them very powerful and very wealthy. Do any of those castles still exist today? Yeah, some do. So some, there are ruins of many of these crusader castles in the Holy Land uh, and in Jordan. There a famous one, Croc de Chevalier, uh, is in Jordan now, and some are in Syria as well that you can go and, and visit. Um, when it when it's safe to do so, but yeah, so that's probably the most famous one that's been well maintained. Uh, but there are you know elements of others in Israel as well. So okay, well we're coming up on a break in about a minute, but maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, you know what happened to uh, the order, or maybe all if you want to talk about all four of them in general, and then uh, uh, we can continue that after the break if we need to, and then we'll talk about some of the misconception about the the Knights Templar. Yeah, sure. So, you know, uh, I mean, the, the order, so the Knights Templar, to kind of stay with them for a second, I mean, they, they really grew in recruitment uh, and an increase in membership because St. Bernard of Clairvaux was a big supporter of them. I mentioned earlier that his uncle was one of the founding members of the of the order, and uh, so St. Bernard really kind of gravitated to his Cistercian himself, so he obviously gravitated towards this group and 
and wrote a treatise called On the Praise of the New Knighthood, uh, which which helped recruitment efforts in particular. And he actually was able to uh, help the order receive papal approval in the year 1128. So uh, the order grew, and it became, as I mentioned, wealthy because they were granted land. But also the Templars, interestingly enough, were one of the orders, or the, the first order that really kind of began uh, what I would call, you know, an international ATM service, if you will, a financial service. So what I meant, what I mean by that is that so, so pilgrims, when they left from Europe to go to the Holy Land, you didn't want to take large amounts of money with you because that's liability, you get robbed and you lose all your money. So you could go to a Templar house in Europe and you could deposit your money there and then you would get a, a receipt from them that said, you know, Pilgrim Steve, you know, deposited X numbers of marks of cologne here on this date. And you could take that receipt when you got to the Holy Land, to the Latin East, you would take the receipt to a Templar house there, and they would give you the money that you had deposited back in Europe, minus a little surcharge, a little ATM fee, if okay. you will. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to have to jump in here for just a second and interrupt you, Steve. We've got a break we're going to have to take care of, but we want our listeners to uh, remember the, uh, the, uh, the ATM idea, and we'll get back to it. After this break, you're listening to Real Presence Live, and we're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about the Knights Templar. Live, engaging, and local, this is Real Presence Live, where we bring you positive and uplifting stories and share the great things happening in our local area on the Real Presence Radio Network. Hello, this is Mike Kidrowski, Director of Advancement for Real Presence Radio with a creative gift planning tip. Do you want to make sure Real Presence Radio continues to receive your support in perpetuity? This can now be accomplished by establishing an individual endowment account in your name with a minimum gift of $10,000. A distribution will be made annually in your name to assure future generations will continue to hear the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ through the mission of Real Presence Radio. To learn more about establishing an individual endowment for Real Presence Radio, a gift which will last in perpetuity, Please call me, Mike Kidrowski, at 701-290-4503. State tax credits may apply in some states. Let's get started. This is Father Anthony Craig from the Diocese of Duluth. I really want to thank my parents today for giving me the faith of Jesus Christ and teaching me the ways of prayer praying over us uh, when we were sick, showing us uh, self-sacrifice. My father actually was a deacon, a permanent deacon in the church, and he would bring us along as kids, because there were six of us kids, and he would bring us along to hospital visits or to work in the food shelf and doing all these various things for people in the community. And I learned ways of serving others through that, through watching my dad. And then my mom, she also was very self-sacrificial of herself. She wore the same pair of tennis shoes for about 10 years to show us that she didn't care about herself as much as the rest of us. And we got new shoes for every school year. We had all of what we needed and most of what we wanted. And the, the Lord really provided a, a great example in my parents to show me the way to really Christian servitude and prepared me for the priesthood. You're listening to Real Presence Live on the Real Presence Radio Network. Join the conversation on our Facebook page or on Twitter. And be sure to like and follow us for more great Catholic content. 
Now, back to the show. Okay, welcome back to uh, Real Presence Live. We're talking with Steve Weidenkopf about uh, the Knights Templar, and uh, I'm your host, along with my wife, Doreen, and my name is Jack Canelli. Sorry, Doreen, I interrupted you. Oh, that's okay. I was just going to say welcome back. Yes, so we were talking before the break about uh, the Knights Templar being kind of a medieval ATM and also kind of how they were, you know, what happened to the order. They, you were talking about how they were growing. Steve, why don't we just take it from there? Sure, yeah. So because the, the order you kind of ran this, this you know, international financing um, apparatus, if you will, the first ATMs where you could deposit money in a Templar house in Europe and then receive it back uh, when you got to the Holy Land minus the surcharge, they, they grew in, in uh, wealth and in influence and power and authority, not only in the Holy Land, but also uh, in Europe, especially after when, when the last um, Christian city in the Latin East fell, the city of Acre in 1291. Uh, you know, most of these military religious orders left the Latin East, left the Holy Land, and they had to settle other places. You know, many of them went back to, to Europe. Uh, some received, you know, other territories, like the Hospitals, uh settle on Malta and become known much later and become known as the Knights of Malta. Uh, so, you know, it's in the 16th century. But you have uh, the, the Templars are, are still very active in their land holdings in Europe and specifically in France. And so they, they many secular rulers, in particular King Philip IV, the Fair of France, was very envious of the Templars, their influence and the money and wealth and power that they had. And so he begins to uh, try to uh, get rid of them, in essence. So he has a, a henchman, a guy by the name of William of Milgaray, who was his advisor, who had who brings trumped-up charges, if you will, against the Templars in France. And so on Friday, October 13, 1307, King Philip IV orders the arrest of all of the Templars in France and begins a royal investigation into the order. Now, this was completely, um, you know, not... Uh, it was not within the realm of the of the king to do, frankly, because the Templars were a, a military religious order. They were under ecclesiastical law and jurisdiction and not under uh, the secular law and jurisdiction. And so really the king had no, no authority to arrest the Templars, but he didn't really care. He went ahead and did it anyways. Uh, and they were they were again brought up on on these trumped up charges of they were you know, Nogare said that they had performed anti Christian rituals and their in their secret initiation ceremonies that they spat on crucifixes that they worship idols and that they even uh, practiced sodomy in in their, in their order and so these again were all false and fake charges that were brought against the order but it was done because the king wanted their land their influence their money their power he wanted it for himself. Uh, and eventually, sadly, he's able to convince King Philip is to convince Pope Clement V to suppress the order at the Ecumenical Council of Vienne uh, in the year 1311. Now, when Pope Clement uh, suppressed the order, he didn't pass any judgment on their guilt. Um, he just ordered them suppressed, which obviously was in, within his power to do. He is the Pope. Uh, and he took all of their land and property and wealth, though, which the King Philip had hoped would come to him, Instead, the Pope gave all the, the Templar land and property throughout Christendom to the hospitals, to the uh, to another religious order. So the king was successful in suppressing them, but or in getting them, getting rid of them. But he wasn't successful in, in getting you know the money and wealth from them, which is what he really wanted to do. Uh, a few years later, ultimately, the uh, the king then uh, executed the master, the last master of the Templar order, Jacques de Molay, 
um, by having him burned at the stake. Uh, so that's kind of the, the end, if you will, of the Knights, the Knights Templars in terms of their actual secular history. Again, many of them, many of these other orders, like the Hospitals, uh that I mentioned, morph into the Knights of Malta later. They continue to play a significant role uh, in church history and various church events and historical events uh, and, and still exist in some form or another today. So the Knights of Malta still exist as a, as a, uh, a group. In the world, an internationally recognized organization, the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, another one of these military religious orders, also still exists today and is actually affiliated with the Church. Uh, and one can become a member of the Knights of the Holy Sepulchre, and they have a, a charitable mission to Christians living in the Holy Land now. So the order principally does charity work to maintain, to ensure that there is a Christian presence in the Holy Land uh, in, in the modern world. Um, so... So that's kind of the story of, of the Templars and some of these military religious orders. I know there's, I think you wanted to get talk about different myths and misconceptions that people have about the, these warrior monks. Um, and, you know, there are many of them, right? I mean, people have used, especially Hollywood, they, they are these shadowy figures, if you will, that, um, you know, kind of have this unique uh, story, right? They're, they're monks, so they're people that pray and they're religious, but then they also fight and they're soldiers. You know, that's, that's just golden material for Hollywood and, and fiction writers and things like that. So, uh, sadly, many, many different authors and, and many different movies have taken the Templars and other, uh, and others of these military disorders and have used them to be, you know, uh, villains in their various stories or to have some kind of shadowy underworld influence, if you will. So, Dan Brown uses them extensively in his Da Vinci Code book, which came out even many years ago now, uh, as, the, as the, the order, if you will, that along with Opus Dei, that kind of protects the secret of, uh, of you know, uh, what Dan Brown argued that Jesus was married and had children, these kinds of things. Um, and so, you know, Hollywood uses them. I think they were involved in the National Treasure movies as well. I think the Templars were mentioned that they had hoarded, like, the secret treasure and wealth and um, you know, part of the movie was to find that. So, um, you know, there's, they're, they're used as, as villains and, and uh, shadowy figures in, in various movies that, that try to paint the, the church in some negative light in many cases, sadly. Yeah, f- funny thing that uh, Hollywood should uh, misrepresent things about the church and its history. It's, it's, almost, look, it's almost like the, they took their version of these orders out of uh, the uh, court of King was it King Philip of France who was trying to get rid of them? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, well, that's the other thing that makes too right for a good story is that because you had these these trumped up charges, which were quite you know outlandish and scandalous and and whatnot, it, it does provide some some you know uh, fantastic source material to to use for various um, works of fiction. And it, you know it gives it because they were an actual real historical order, and there are you know historical records about them, and we know a lot about them. Uh, you know, it lends a certain amount of credibility, if you will, to some, or at least that's what people think for these many myths and misconceptions. Because, and that's that's the the insidiousness, frankly, of, of people like Dan Brown and others who who do that because they take something that was real, they take a historical event as an historical person, uh, but then they use it in in a fictitious way uh, to concoct their own kind of story and whatnot. But it but it. But they, you know, they, they kind of walk that line of, of, you know, well, I'm talking about real historical events and real historical people, so maybe this really happened, that kind of thing. And it sows doubt in people's minds, which is just uh, unfortunate and, and sad. And, and that's why as Catholics, right, we need to know our history. We need to know the authentic historical events and, and what the real story was of these people and of this, uh, these orders. 
uh, in order to fight and to you know defend the, the church against attack and to defend when when these myths and misconceptions are brought forward and presented as fact because they're not. Mm-hmm. Do we have any idea how many men might have been um, involved in these uh, orders? Yeah, you know the numbers were not as many as you would think, right? right? I mean, for very especially how powerful they were. At one point, I know that the both the Templars and the Hospitallers could muster 600 knights in the Holy Land uh, during the height of their presence mm. in the Holy Land. That doesn't that doesn't seem like a lot, um, but it represented about half of the knights in uh, that were available to the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the Latin East. So, which is significant. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we tend to think of armies and soldiers in modern terms of you know tens of thousands or millions. Uh, that just is not the case uh, in the medieval world, right? Medieval armies were never that large um, and never that big. So 600 knights out of, you know, which represents half of total knights in an area is quite significant. So, you know, there were more people besides knights that were attached to the order. So there were, you know, sergeants and, you know, more what we would say uh, we would call enlisted men, if you will, that, that also fought with the order and there were members of the order. You know, there were priests that were part of the order as well, who didn't fight, but attended to the spiritual needs of the order whatnot. Um, and, you know, and then there were obviously just lay people who helped and worked for the order that would that would probably have fought with them if, if necessary. So, you know, so the order and, and the people attached to it would have been more than 600, you know, several thousands perhaps, but again, not something where, you know, you would have that many marching into battle at any one time, um, and they would be scattered too. So once, once, the religious orders left the Holy Land at the end of the 13th century because the last Christian city fell to Muslim control again. Um, you know, they come back to Europe, and then there's there's you know, good numbers of them, hundreds, thousands, if you will, but they're scattered all throughout Christendom. Well, this this has been this has been fun this this interview. But uh, where can our listeners go if they want to learn some more about the the Knights Templars and these other various orders and uh, other aspects of Catholic history? Yeah, sure. So there's some great books that are out about the, the, the military religious orders of the warrior monks. Uh, a French medievalist by the name of Régine Pernod wrote a book called The Templars. I highly recommend that. There's a modern historian, Helen Nicholson, who also writes some good books on, on this particular topic. Desmond Seward, as well, wrote a book called The Monks at War. And then Jonathan Riley Smith, another crusade historian, has written on it as well. And, and I wrote a book a few years ago called The Glory of the Crusades published by Catholic Answers Press, where I talk about the Crusades in general, and, and I do mention the military religious orders in that book as well. Okay, great. Well, uh, if anybody wants to learn about it, you got any number of books to, to check out there. But, and uh, we've come to the end of our segment, Steve. I wish we had more time to talk about other topics, and I'm sure we'll have you on again uh, you know, as time permits and uh, as your schedule might permit. And uh, we want to thank you very much for being with us this second time, and I'm looking forward to a third time. And uh, with that, uh, I guess uh, we'll, we'll again say thanks to Steve Weidenkopf for talking to us about the the uh, the, the Knights Templar today and the, the, the military orders. And we hope to have you on again. And up next, who is Bishop Quinn's favorite saint? We'll be discussing this. All saints and all souls when we return on Real Presence Live. This is Real Presence Live, where the focus is not on the evil around us, but on conversion and mercy through the good news that is always good. We're local, engaging, and live on the Real Presence Radio Network. 